Howdy. Welcome to the Mays Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deere, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs. It's just me for today's show. I'm not joined by your amazing host, Ben Wiggins, but for an exciting reason. We're starting a series in partnership with the Mays Innovation Research Center. The Mays Innovation Research Center is dedicated to understanding the true nature of innovation and how it benefits society. The center brings in innovative and creative guests, many of whom are successful entrepreneurs. And at Mays Mastercast, we have the honor of interviewing them while they're on campus. The format for our episodes with the center are going to be a little different than our regular episodes. Ben and I aren't going to do an introduction and we aren't going to do top three takeaways at the end. We're just going to jump into the episode. Today's guest is Scott Mosgrip and his wife, Carmen. Scott started an innovative business meeting clients' needs in the trucking space. All right. Um, welcome here, Scott and Carmen. We are excited to have you here. And Adam, one of your sons, is in the room as well. Um, so we're excited to have the whole family here to chat today. I'm going to start with our icebreaker question, which we use to start every show, which is just what is your favorite superpower? I think my favorite superpower would be the ability to fly. Yeah. Why would ability to fly be your favorite? More freedom. Mm-hmm. And getting places faster. Potentially. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> Although you think society maybe should slow down a little bit. I heard you say that today. Maybe a little bit, <laughs> but uh, just so that we can catch up with what we've already learned. Sure, absolutely. So, Scott, tell us about who you are and who you were before becoming an entrepreneur. I am a fun-loving person. <laughs> I love to have fun. Uh, I love to laugh. And that was true before I became an entrepreneur. When I became an entrepreneur, it was really hard to laugh because it was a lot of hard work yeah. and it was really difficult. And uh, now that the business is doing better, I can laugh again. Yes. So it, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And you're originally from California? Correct. I was okay. born in California. I moved to Idaho uh, when I was about four years old. Okay. So your family is now in Idaho as well? Yes, for the most okay. part. Good. And you came to Texas A&M eventually. Where did you go before that? And then what brought you here to Texas A&M? Well, uh, I got my undergraduate degree from Oregon State University in physics. And because I wasn't going to be a good physicist, <laughs> my advisor suggested that I go to business school. So I took the graduate entrance exams and did really well. Uh, submitted several applications had two applications that really stood out with good financial rewards for me. Uh, one was Texas A&M, who actually called me right after they received my application. It's a pretty and, big honor. And the dean said, you are in. Now, you're not going to hear from the registrar for months, but we want you to know that you are in and we want you here and here's what we're offering. And then I was also accepted at BYU to go with good financial incentives. Mm. So... Uh, Thought about it, talked to people about it, talked to my employers about it, uh, just everyone trying to get a how to make the decision on which one to go to. And uh, ended up that no one could give me any definitive reason why I should pick one over the other. Sure. So I decided I would settle it in the most manly way that I could possibly <laughs> figure out. And uh, that year in 1990, in the Holiday Bowl, Ty Detmer, the Heisman winning quarterback, was playing against the Texas A&M wrecking crew defense. And I decided whoever won that football game, <laughs> that would be the school that I would go to. That's how I'd make my choice. That's a man after my own heart. I like that. <laughs> 
So as you can imagine, uh, 35 nothing at half, 56-14 for the final. I came to AM. That's that's exciting. Good way to pick a school. And in all honesty, the two schools have a very similar culture. We get a lot of students from BYU and vice versa. So it's a nice complement of culture. So you're you picking between really quite similar quality and culture as well. Yeah. When you have two good choices in life, right. it doesn't matter. You just need to pick. Right. Right. And so, so you can flip a coin. Me, I, I use football games to make my decisions. <laughs> that's awesome. And Carmen, I've heard you say on a video that you had a whole career before you met Scott. You had your own accomplishments. You were even busier than he was at, at some points. And so tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, my background is in uh, travel. So I used to be a travel agent, took groups all over the world. It was a lot of fun, especially Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. Loved it. When he met me, I was helping a brand new physical therapist open his own business, and I was his business manager. Been there for about two months, and then Scott came along, and the physical therapist said, Carmen, give me a month's notice. And so that's what I did. But I was also a volleyball ref and uh, for high school and city league and a softball umpire for high school and city league. So when we first met and he said he owned eight businesses, but he goes, I think you're busier than I am. I was like, what? (laughs) I was. I was. (laughs) And and let's talk about that for a second. We'll get into your business in a minute, but let's talk about the busyness for a second. How have you managed to... I'm sure it's not always that balance. There are times when things are crazy and hectic and all you're doing is working. But how have you managed to find that balance and find those times where life is not all work? I've really been diligent about making sure that I work while my kids were at school. Hmm. So between eight o'clock in the morning when they're heading off to school and five o'clock when they're coming home from their sporting events, that was my work time. That was the the me time that I had. And I really tried to schedule in between those times so that when I was at work, I was at work. When I was with my family or at some other evening obligation, I was there. I was not still at work. And how did you do that? Was it the ability to say no? Is it What was it that made you do that? And most people can't. Entrepreneurs are not. Unfortunately, most entrepreneurs will choose to allow their business to chase them all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not that their business requires them all the time. It's a choice that they actually make, that they like doing that Mm -hmm. more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to fall into that trap. And so I made the choice that I wouldn't let my business run me, but that I would run my business. Hard to do, especially when you get that rush or high or energy from the success or from the busyness or whatever it is about the business that is attractive to some people. Yeah. And see, for me, that high comes from the creative process, Mm. creating something new that doesn't exist. Which is interesting. So you've started many businesses where you've created something new that didn't exist before. You're actually here today with the Mays Innovation Research Center and talking about that creativity and innovation. So first, what are some of the businesses that you have started. We know truckstop.com is probably the one that maybe is uh, is the biggest right now, but what are some of the other ones that you've started? Uh, we've started businesses in a lot of different uh, areas. We've started restaurants. We've started financial companies. We've started property management company, property development companies. Uh, we even did farming. Mm. 
You know, what farming did you do? Scott's Berry Farm. Okay. And what kind of berries were you farming? Primarily, we farm strawberries and raspberries as uh, alternative crops to grow in our area in Idaho because okay. there isn't a lot of variety to sure. what the farmers grow. Sure. And so uh, we've done a variety of different uh, things. But for the most part, we've really focused on transportation because there's been a tremendous need for innovation within transportation. So walk our listeners through kind of the evolution of truckstop.com and how it started, your your story about kind of the, where the idea came from and a little bit about the evolution of truckstop.com. So I was driving back from uh, California in my father's 74 Mercury with an AM8 track player to keep me entertained. It was fine until I hit the Nevada <laughs> desert where there is no real AM stations that are going to entertain you. And uh, as a result, I had a lot of quiet time uh, while I was driving and I was trying to get through the desert as quick as I could because it's really boring. So as I was driving down the highway, is about 100 miles outside of Reno and I passed one of the gypsum plants that had a trailer that they had painted up that said loads to anywhere and had their phone number to call. And as I drove past that, I thought that is just the dumbest thing that I have ever seen because no one is going to drive around the middle of the Nevada desert looking for essentially a job offer board uh, on the side of the road. And, and it just bugged me. And so about five miles later, I was you know, pulling out little pieces of paper going, well, if truckers need a sign in the middle of the desert to tell them where to find freight, you know, that's something that we could put on the Internet. What are other things that truckers would like? And so I used every napkin, every receipt, every scrap of paper that I could possibly find and just wrote down all the ideas about it. I got back home about eight hours later, logged into the Internet to see what was going on in, in trucking or freight or transportation. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing happening. So I called up my father and I said, I think I've got my idea now. And uh, what do you think? And he said, sounds like a good idea. It's a big industry. It sounds like it needs lots of help. Why don't you give it a shot? There's so many interesting things to unpack from this story because we're not talking about the internet of 2019. We're talking about the internet of? 1995. Yeah. And um, what was the internet like in 1995 for our listeners who may have missed that, that era of the internet? The most popular aspects of the internet at that time were AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy. All thriving businesses today. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it's because they weren't even internet businesses. They right. were really bulletin boards that had just started to tie into the internet infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was a very difficult time to start an internet-based business because most people had never even heard of the internet, let alone had the uses that we see today. Absolutely. I mean, today you've got the internet in your pocket on right. demand. Back then, totally different uh, aspect. You know, again, most people hadn't even heard of it. And you were in rural Idaho at this time? Correct. And so I'm sure there was uh, a lot of fiber cables and, and things like that running through the middle of the farmland or or not. <laughs> Actually, I, I know for certain I have witnessed fiber cable being laid next to the interstate so that Idaho now has fiber cable in it. Now, but not in 1995. Not in 1995. And so what tools were you using then? 
Well, in our business, we started, you know, running the internet out of our house off of our own servers. And the initial uh, internet speeds that we had was we had a dedicated 56K line Mm. that uh, ran our businesses, which was almost the top speed modem that a person's house could get. Sure. So, I mean... It was almost no bandwidth. Absolutely. Your phone on its worst throttled setting has more bandwidth than that. And that's what ran all of our servers. Yeah. So it was super fast. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a little slow. But we, I think you, today I heard you say the scale of the problems were smaller because the bandwidth was smaller and the speed was smaller. And as you scale up, you create some new problems for yourself. Correct. A lot of the internet was more textually based Mm. um, so that the pages loaded a lot faster than they do today. Right. That's really interesting. You didn't, because you didn't have the power, you couldn't have the video and the pictures and things like that too. Well, and the internet didn't even have protocols to handle those kinds Mm. of things. Mm -hmm. So Java hadn't even really been released to the internet at this point. I mean, it was, it was a challenging time to be an internet company and developing things for the internet. A wild frontier. Very wild. So tell us more about what that need was that you were providing as an internet company, but really more than that. To better understand our company, we are like an eHarmony or a Match.com. The difference is, is we don't match up boys and girls. We match up trucks with freight. And that was very needed back in the... 1990s is probably needed well before that, but you know, I wasn't in the in the process of getting into a business then. But this whole idea of a truck having to drive around empty, looking for his next load to haul, was what we were attacking. How could we make the industry more efficient? How could we keep the guys from wasting money on gas, wasting time on driving, trying to find these spots where they could pick up and bring that information to their fingertips? And over over the course of time, it has really changed from uh, finding my load that I need today so that I can move today to finding the load I need three days from now so that when I drop off my load three days from now, I've already got my next one arranged and ready to go. So it really has changed a lot of the attitudes of the industry as going from a a last second, you know, hope for a Hail Mary and find something to actually having things done and planned out in advance Mm -hmm. to help make them more profitable and help make them have better use of their time. Which is really the crux of any business, but certainly what you seem to have done better than most businesses. Because from what I understand from reading about you and watching some videos you've done, it wasn't you saying, I really want to be in the trucking business. I'm going to figure out what need they have. You said, I see a need. I don't really care anything about trucking, but let me still meet this need. And that's the need that you met was matching up the truckers and the and the companies that needed loads moved but it was also at at the base of it making companies more profitable and how do you think you've done that better than most i think our customers would be the ones to best answer that Mm -hmm. Uh, the reason they love us is because we do that We, we help them to make more money which is a really unusual business model to have we're a tool that allows them to make more money 
I think the other thing that's interesting about your business model is that you do make your customers much more money. And yet your pricing model is not based on profit sharing or anything like that. You're not trying to take the customer's profits. You're just really trying to emphasize what they're able to do. Correct. (laughs) Well, if you take their profits, then they go out of business. Right. And so the whole idea is make them more successful. And in business, you know that you, you know, you're going to get a little piece of the pie as well. So if you don't get them out of business, they're still in business, then they can still help you. And so it's all that. How can I help you? Because eventually you'll come back and help us. And it's that symbiotic relationship that's been really neat to watch the customers and truckstop.com is be able to forge that relationship. And it's been neat to watch as an outsider. And so one of the things that I've heard you say as well is how much you listen to your customers. And it seems so logical and so basic. And yet so many entrepreneurs don't do it. They come up with this idea they think is great. And maybe it is a good idea, but they haven't gone out to the market to talk to the customers, to do the customer interviews, to say, what is the need that you have? And then be willing to pivot on that need. How have you implemented that within your business? Well, our business has been built on that because we don't have a whole lot of transportation industry experience in our employee base. And you can imagine when we started, we had none. And so we've always had to listen to our customers. One of the challenges that entrepreneurs get into is they they think they've created something great and it's great for them and they would buy it. But the secret of a successful business is having others want to buy your product. And so if you don't build what they want, how will you ever get them to buy it? You then have to spend a lot of money on marketing and advertising to convince them that they need your product as opposed to having them actually want it just out of a natural desire. And so a lot of extra cost goes into to trying to convince people that they need your product. Whereas with ours, we don't have to convince people. People are already convinced they want to make more money. That That's, that's a built-in conviction that they have. And so we don't have to convince them of that. We just have to show them how our product helps them to do that. You've built your product based on the needs they've told you they have. And so even your product is really not just your idea. It's your customer's idea as well. Yeah, it's almost none of our ideas. Mm-hmm. It's our implementation, but it's it's their pain points that we're solving. It's not our pain points that we're solving. Do you think it was easier to have that mentality because you weren't in the trucking industry? You didn't have that experience? Or is this just innate to you? I would claim it both. Yeah. You know, his whole experience of being in a truck is less than 30 seconds. Somebody kicked him out. He just <laughs> thought it'd be cool to see what was like, what it was like inside of a truck. So for him, he has to because he doesn't know. Now he knows. But the everyday little intricacies, you know, unless you're in the business, you don't know those things. And so for them to be really successful, they've really had to count on their customers. And what's been amazing is the customers have been fantastic. They are amazing customers. And I think they've come to realize if we tell truckstop.com what we need, they'll build it for us. And, and what's neat is it's usually a need that everybody has. And so they've come to trust truckstop.com in knowing that they would help them to be better in their business. And that's very rare in a business is to have somebody trust somebody else's business to help yours. 
like we said, you weren't necessarily passionate about the trucking industry, but what made you passionate about this business that kept you in it, that the blood, sweat, and the tears that you invested in it, that motivated you to do that? What were you passionate about that kept you in that business? So it wasn't a natural thing. People don't gravitate to the transportation industry from a high-tech type uh, area. Sure. So the things that have kept me in it are the customers. I, I love my customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are awesome, wonderful, tremendous people. And the job that they do is a tough job. But it's one that if it isn't done, I'm not going to see strawberries at the grocery store. I'm not going to be able to uh, have socks or shoes to wear in the winter up in Idaho. If, if this job of transportation doesn't occur, you know, everything in the United States essentially falls apart. And so it's a tough industry and it's got great people in it. And I just, I love the people. And I think it shows in what we do in creating the products to try and help make their lives a little better, to help do this dirty job just a little bit better. How have things changed for you since moving from president and CEO to chairman of the company? I'm getting to spend a lot more time with computers and a lot less time with employees. So I'm getting to develop more and more of the ideas. I'm being able to spend more time with customers to hear what their pain points are and to try and see if we have data that can help provide the information that they need to help solve those pain points. So I have really enjoyed uh, this transition and the business has enjoyed that transition as well. You've talked a lot about the data that you are able to provide your customers so that it's not just a product of matching, but it really is this data that makes them better. Do you sell that data or do you provide that to them? Is that part of the revenue model that you have or is that kind of an added bonus of working with truckstop.com? Everything is paid for somehow, but we don't generally sell data. We generally sell information because the data by itself is just a bunch of ones and zeros. It's putting all that data into uh, an actionable information package that makes it valuable to the customers. So we don't sell data Mm -hmm. uh, per se, but we do use the data to try and help enhance the information that, that we're giving and collecting and sharing with our customers. So tell us about the jungle, the rocky road, and the highway of owning a business? This is a question we like to ask a lot of entrepreneurs. It works quite nicely with you since it has the highway word in there, but the jungle, rocky road, and highway of owning a business. Uh, The highway of owning the business is after you hit that break-even point and that you're not worried about how you're going to keep the lights on. That is really the highway of the business. The rocky road is probably the changing landscape that uh, our customers are dealing with. You know, it it, it jostles us a bit um, because we need to either provide more information or better information or more tactical information or more strategical information. So it kind of jostles us a little bit in the in our road. If I can add one thing on the rocky road, it would be going from a founder-led business to a management type of business. So going from everything goes through Scott to changing it to there are multiple people things go through. And so creating those positions in the business, what does it look like? So it took, he finally hired a management team and it took about a year for them to actually get onto that smooth highway. 
because they were coming into this business. They all had back, almost all of them had backgrounds in the trucking world, except for one. And so watching them try to have the same vision and they were all amazing men and watching them come together and have that same vision and direction and yet figuring out their own roles. And so it took about a year for them to finally get comfortable where they were at. And then all of a sudden the business just boomed because now it just wasn't Scott. It wasn't just him dealing with everything all by himself. It was being able to share that experience with others and have them help have it grow. That really was amazing. But it was it was pretty rocky in the be- beginning because it had never been done in our business yet. And so that was that was neat to watch them finally hit that highway and be able to move forward after doing all of this. And was that about 2016 that the management team came in? Or was that before that? 13. Yeah, 13. Okay, 13. <laughs> and then, so you had the management team in place for a while before you transitioned over to chairman. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. a couple of years. It's really hard for entrepreneurs, right? I mean, we talk about business businesses for entrepreneurs being their babies, and it's true. It's hard to give that up and to step back. And we see a lot of companies here at Mays when they start to grow, if they can't turn over that trust to someone else, they really either stall out or just go out of business because it's hard and you need people to have different expertise and different ideas and new and fresh ideas. So it's, again, admirable that you were able to kind of turn over some of that control. Well, this has been a child for me. So for the first 18 years, I was the parent. For the last five years that it has been at the university, the management team has been taking care of it. And now it's becoming a grown-up. Are you and are you the grandparent now? I, Is it like the more fun grandparent role? <laughs> I think the grandparent would be the spin-offs that come from the business. Mm-hmm. But but uh, yeah, now it's now it's really entering its next phase mm-hmm. where it's the management team is having to broaden and the business is doing more mergers and acquisitions and things of that nature. Wow. So it's, it's really a new phase of mm-hmm. life for the business now that it's finished its university uh, stretch. So the jungle, we didn't talk about that one. You talked about the highway and the rocky road. What's the jungle? I'm not certain jungle is the right word that I would use, I'd probably use more sand, more like a sand Mm -hmm. dune than a jungle, because Mm -hmm. it seems like the business environment that we build and stand on is constantly shifting underneath us. Regulation and all these kinds of things really have created a sandy foundation for businesses, and they're having to do a lot more shoring up Rather than concentrating on their customers and their products, it's more concentrating on the internal aspects of complying with regulation. And and I will leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) And we will leave it at that. But the accounting and the HR and the stuff that you don't, most people, as an accountant, I might, but most people don't go into business to do those kinds of things. It's not the fun, energizing part of business. And as it changes, it's hard to keep up. And so I think there there are some clear challenges there that aren't the fun core of your business. Yeah, the things that suck the life out of creativity. 
You talked a little bit when you were talking about the Rocky Road, it was interesting because the way the question is set up, it kind of sounds like you're in the jungle for a period, then you're in the Rocky Road for a period, and then you're on the highway for this long period of time. And the way you answered it really is it's it's cyclical, right? It's this highway, and then we go back to the Rocky Road. And part of what you said with the Rocky Road was that the changing landscape for your customers. What is changing for your customers and how are you all responding to that? Just about every aspect is changing for our customers, whether it be uh, the ELD mandate for the truckers. Can you explain what ELD is? For yes, uh, ELD is the electronic logging device. It's like the little black box that uh, tells you what the truck is doing and in consequence to that, theoretically, what the driver is doing okay. uh, with the truck. And uh, the government mandated them here about 15 months ago. In another nine months, there's a second phase of that mandate that's going into effect. There's been a lot of pushback on it. No one wants a black box telling them what to do. Uh, I always like to think of things in a common sense, practical type of way. Uh, you know, if you had to have a black box on your car, at any time the government could review and tell you what you've been doing right and what you've been doing wrong, you wouldn't be very excited about it, and neither are they. Other aspects that are changing are things like AI and machine learning, pushing in uh, automation, uh, robotics, uh, autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole bunch of facets um, that are coming into transportation, and it's causing angst. But I'm certain just like when the car replaced the horse as the main means of transportation, that there was some angst that occurred at that point, too. And so, you know, it's all about helping your customer navigate these bumps, these changes that are happening and helping them feel comfortable and helping them have a smooth highway for their business going forward. And because you've done such an excellent job of listening to your customers and they trust you, you are well positioned to navigate those rocky roads with them more so than another company that wasn't listening at this point in time as things are changing for them, you're able to adapt to. Yeah. Well, and you know, when someone's going through a rocky road, they don't necessarily want to share that with anyone because in business, sharing that you're going through a rocky road is a sign of weakness. Yes. So the fact that our customers open up to us about their weaknesses so that we can help make them strengths is it's just incredible. And a huge competitive advantage. So you've mentioned creativity a couple of times. You're here with the Mays Innovation Research Center. Tell me about your passions with creativity and, and, and what you think about that. I love creating anything. One of my strengths is that I see pieces of a puzzle and can join them together. And it can be completely weird things. It could be, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings in China and the hurricane shows up on the East Coast. Making those connections to desperate pieces of data and being able to show how that is actually actionable information is one of my creative powers. And so I really enjoy doing those kinds of things. Carmen is a big puzzle fan. She loves creating puzzles and, and doing things. I have to be careful when she enters the puzzle zone to <laughs> make sure I have other things to occupy my time uh, <laughs> because she may not come out of it for several hours. Are you doing jigsaw puzzles? Yes. Or other? Yeah. Love I love puzzles. I did my first jigsaw puzzle over the winter break and I was... 
It's it's too addicting. Oh, it is. I just bought a puzzle. It has 40,000 pieces. 40,000. Yeah, it's going to take a while. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Leave her alone, Scott. <laughs> so I have some creative time coming yeah, up yeah. while she's working on her puzzle. But it's that's just what I like. I, I like creating those things. But I I like creating just about anything. I'm, I'm not a very good artist, uh, so I don't have those kinds <laughs> of creative talents. But I like to cook. And I love to create goodies. That's that's what are, what are like baked goodies? Caramels, or, oh. caramels, snickerdoodles, mm. ginger cookies, pies. Nice. I, I'm a good goodie face. Nice. But what's really neat about him? So for him being creative, he has a a room. There's no windows. There's only the door. Oh wow. And it's all the walls are whiteboards basically. And so it's where he does all of his creation. And so right now there's what, 60 ideas. He started erasing some and somebody told him, stop erasing because the company just can't keep up. And, you know, you try building 60 things in a year, there's no way you can really only do one or two. And so that's his favorite thing is once he talks to the customers and figures out what they need, he starts getting these ideas. And then the company's trying to keep up with his brain of how to put it all together. It's a good problem to have, but sometimes a hard problem to have too, right? When you have many ideas to pick the ones that really deserve your energy and attention. Yeah. Because from a business standpoint, they'll say, well, what's the highest revenue idea? Not necessarily the the one that's going to help the customers (laughs) the most. That's Because a lot of times what's what will help them the most doesn't have a whole lot of revenue associated with it. So, Mm -hmm. so you have those kind of trade-offs where, okay, here's a high revenue idea And here's a good helpful idea and here's how they work together. Yes, that makes sense. So one of the things that you mentioned too was that your business idea came to you in a moment of quiet while you were driving with no radio, no eight tracks in the car and you were bored and that creativity came to you in that moment of boredom. I've read a lot about that recently because I do not like getting bored. I also like being creative. And so it's a hard balance of making that space in your life where you can be bored because our brains naturally don't want to be bored. And so they start getting creative. How do you keep that quiet time? How do you tell other people to keep that quiet time? Even your children, how do you help them manage that? That's a really great question. You can't manage other people's times. So I try to help people find times during their normal day where they can have quiet and creative time. So I'll always tell students that my number one quiet time that I have during the day is in the morning when I'm taking a shower because no one's going to bother me. No one's going to interrupt me. I'm not listening to music. I'm not reading something. I'm not doing anything. My body is smart enough that it knows what it needs to do every morning in the shower to, to take care of everything. And so it really is a, a unique time for me to be able to just have my brain think about things. And it's always you know pretty much first thing in the morning when your brain is freshest, you've mm-hmm. thought on things all night long subconsciously through your sleep. So it really is a unique time to actually have those inspirations really come and hit you full force. I heard from a creativity coach once that 
you should have, they have these um, shower Crayola markers where you can write on the shower that you should have those in the shower because that's where your best ideas come in. If you don't write them down, you might forget them. And so it's an interesting tool and tactic. Yeah. And I've always felt that the best ideas when you get them in the shower will stay with you when you get out. Yeah. So I don't have any markers to write on the shower walls, although Dr. Hill would like to get me a set and and uh, things of that nature. But it really is just a simple time during your day. It's not like you're trying to sit there for four hours saying, oh, I've got to think of something. I've got to think of something. If you right. do that, it won't happen. You, you need those 10 minutes and those 10 minutes will really be powerful because you'll really get the the insight and the inspiration you really need to to take an idea and really know how to step it forward from there. Before we jump into our rapid fire questions, how did you and Carmen meet first? <laughs> so he knew my aunt and he asked her if she knew any single women. And that was basically it. Okay. She said that I was a travel agent and he loves to travel. And so that's how we met. Were you both in Idaho? Yes. Okay. Yeah. She had been to Egypt and I was thinking of taking my uh, second daughter to Egypt for uh, spring break that year. And so I wanted to know about the culture, about the customs, what to avoid, what to absolutely make sure we see, things of that nature. And so so I sent her an email. Mm. And after a couple of days, her aunt got a hold of me and, and said, so has Carmen replied? And I said, no, she hasn't replied. <laughs> she's, she's not interested in, There's a in good answering my, my email. And so I'll let Carmen take the story from here. <laughs> so my aunt called me up and she's like, Carmen, I gave you, uh, this guy's emailing you. How come you haven't emailed him back? And I asked her what email? And she gave me the email. It ended up being an email that was hacked like a year or two earlier. Oh, no. And I just can't get into it anymore. So he <laughs> sent an email to the wrong email address. But then the next day he sent it, it was really kind of fun. And so we email dated. Aww. And we asked a million questions and... Uh, it was only 300. Yeah, it Three, was about 300. 300 questions? About okay. 300 questions. Okay. It was like, you know, toilet paper over or under. Yes. You know, what kind of toothpaste do you use? And and then his uh, employee asked, do I ba bathe or shower? I said, that's a little personal yeah. that an employee yeah. is asking that. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, okay. She was working at the... Uh, the uh, physical therapist's doctor's office. She had patients coming in that didn't have appointments to get the update on our dating scene. Oh, how funny. So we emailed. We had 300 emails that we sent back and forth. We went on one date and... Talked uh, on the phone once. For about 15 seconds and uh, got married in just a little over two months. Wow. From day we met to the day we got married. From the day you met in person no, or electronically? Email. Yeah, electronically. from the day you met electronically to the day you got married. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> and how long have y'all been married? Uh, eight, and a uh, eight and a quarter years now. Yeah. You seem very in love. It's lovely. We are. We're still on our honeymoon. Okay, that's good. Just drag <laughs> that out as long as possible. It's funny. My husband asked me, he sent me a list when we were, we weren't even dating. We were hanging out or something. And he sent me a list of 70 questions. And some of them were those questions, toilet paper over, under, toothpaste, deodorant, you know, just those kinds of things. But then sprinkled in were the questions of, you know, about money, about children, about, you know, values and things like that. And it really did, I think because we started dating when we were a little bit older and 
knew kind of what we wanted. It really did open a very candid conversation about what we wanted with each other, what our expectations were. And while love is lovely, it is it, there is that foundation that needs to be there for the longevity of it. And it's nice. Maybe we should share our questions with our listeners so <laughs> that they can see the list of questions that that should be asked to have a successful relationship. We have been asked for that list before, and I'm pretty certain we have it someplace. So one of my favorites, he asked, so where do you want to go on your honeymoon if you were to get married? And I repeated, well, or no, he asked yeah. Yeah. It was that first. And I said, well, it depends on the last name. And he goes, well, what do you want to be have as your last name? And I said, well, it depends on who asks or something like that. Yeah. And and because, you know, if it was a guy from around town, then I would expect to just, you know, go to the local hotel. <laughs> if it was him who was asking, I wanted to do something a little bit more. <laughs> I love to travel. He loves to travel. And and uh, so where'd you go on your honeymoon? Paris and London. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Those are good classics. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. <laughs> good. All right, we'll move into our rapid fire questions. What do you consider your most valuable failure? My most valuable failure was probably probably the one I discussed in class today where I learned about death of a company by PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. That constant reporting without product and development will absolutely kill a, a company. It's It was a a big failure for me. And it was one that really taught me the lesson of conciseness and focusing on the customers instead of on the, the business. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? Do you want Carmen to answer? <laughs> <laughs> he always wanted people to think he's normal. We live in a cute, small little town and uh, he's kind of the oddball. And so when he's out on the tractor, people kind of freak out uh, that Scott's on a tractor and he's getting his hands dirty. And and so the biggest misconception is he's just a normal guy that just happens to have been very blessed in his life of figuring out this business, listening to his customers, and, and he's just normal. And that's probably the biggest, I think. I could agree with that. <laughs> he's going to believe you no matter what you yeah. say. Right? Yeah. <laughs> What is your fondest memory of Texas A&M? My fondest memory of Texas A&M. I think it was the second year that I was here in graduate school when the dean's office asked me if instead of being a TA and helping out the teachers, if I would help them build and set up a graduate computer lab. And I was kind of like, Sure, I, I can help do that. I'd love to, you know, get more of those kinds of skills in in my my thing. But, you know, when it's set up, what am I going to do? You know, it's set up. And then they offered that uh, for my workload, that what I would do is open up the computer lab and just sit in there in case anyone had any questions. And I was like, oh, wow, that is going to be like super boring if I just have to sit there and wait for graduate students to ask me questions. And they're like, oh, well, you can work on your homework the whole time. And I was like, this is the greatest job ever. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the work was put in up front and all the reward came literally from just, you know, occasionally fixing a printer or helping someone reboot their computer or things of that nature. But for the most part, it was like being paid to study. And, and that was great. That was by far one of my favorite memories here at Texas A&M. 
I'm learning. I imagine you work very hard, so I don't I don't mean this, but you seem to also work very smart. So you've really cornered that market. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> to close out the show, we end each session with Good Bull. This is an opportunity to recognize someone else for something great they have done. Do you have someone you would like to send Good Bull? I think any anyone who is moving freight across this United States that is doing the thankless job that makes all of our lives better. If there was anyone that deserved good bull, it would be them. I'll loop to that. Thank you both for being on the show today and we appreciate your time. Thank you. The Mays Innovation Research Center is dedicated to understanding the true nature of innovation and how it benefits society. The center engages researchers across the college to examine how innovation advances human potential, productivity, and opportunity. The goal is to discover the best preconditions for innovation and identify how innovation spreads through society. The center is actively engaged with cutting-edge research taking place on A&M's campus, including a project to advance autonomous vehicles through the Unmanned Systems Lab in the College of Engineering. You can find out more about the Mays Innovation Research Center at mays.tamu.edu slash innovation dash research dash center. That's mays.tamu.edu slash innovation dash research dash center. Thanks for listening.